I tell you what, recording a podcast is thirsty business, which is why we are really excited to announce that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Clean Collective. Clean Collective are changing the premix game by producing a range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs that, would you believe, contain no sugar, no carbs, no preservatives, are gluten-free and use only natural ingredients. They are a premium alternative to your stock standard run-of-the-mill RTDs, are naturally sweetened and also bloody delicious, if you ask me. Available only from your local liquor store, so next time you're in, look out for the gorgeous white bottles and cans and give them a try. Hey guys. Hi. Really cool podcast today with Dr. Eula Haywood. This was a, a potty for me. I was I was looking forward to this. <laughs> right one up your alley, wasn't it was it? a yeah. Um, we talked a lot about fasting and you know I'm fasting obsessed, so I loved it. When was the last time you ate? Um God, I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just kidding. Guys. Just just yeah. Disclaimer there. But um Dr. Eula Haywood is clinical director at the Edison Clinic and an absolute expert on preventative healthcare. So essentially that means taking care of yourself as well as you can be to keep you healthier for longer. That's right. Yeah. So they, at the Edison Clinic, did you say she's clinical director? I did. You did? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what they do there is they basically, individuals come in and then they put them through like a barrage of tests to essentially assess how healthy they are. So like physical assessments, genetic makeup testing, fitness testing, mental health testing, um, blood tests, all sorts of different things and work out kind of where you are on the spectrum of health and then um, help you run through a whole lot of different lifestyle changes basically to make you superhuman. Yeah, so there are so many gold nuggets to take away here. Oh, I love a gold nugget. Me too, especially when it comes to health and wellness. So it's actually amazing the things we can do in the health space now. It's really exciting. So I think you guys are going to love hearing from the absolute wealth of knowledge that is Dr. Eula Haywood. So enjoy. Hey, Eula. How's it going? Really good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I feel like we've got a lot to cover, so we might just crack straight into it. Could we start by you just giving us a bit of a background about yourself and your health career from working as a Westpac rescue helicopter? Um, what were you, sort of a um, doctor based in the helicopter? Yeah. Um, so to, to go back a step, um, there's a lot of different types of doctor out there, particularly when you look at what they're doing in the States. So just for pure clarity, I am a standard medical doctor. I went to med school and then I embarked on particular training as a specialist in emergency medicine. So I'm a medical physician, but trained in emergency medicine particularly. And I worked uh, in Auckland since 2010 doing that. And for five years, I also worked for the Westpac Rescue Helicopter Trust and absolutely loved being one of their, they're called HEMS doctors. So it's the Helicopter Emergency Medicine Service. And that was pretty fun, high octane, amazing team. Um, so you're flying off, helping people who've fallen off cliffs or got stranded out in the wild with broken legs or, you know, they've had heart attacks or suffered severe anaphylaxis in the wild. Um, lots of trauma, lots of very critically ill people. Uh, so that was kind of, I'd call it like my hobby medicine. I did it in addition to my day job and um, had a great time doing that. So that was my background until 2018. Wow. That sounds like it could have been pretty intense. Did you like, surely when you first started, did you have to come up with some sort of almost like coping mechanisms for dealing with some of the extreme cases? 
Yeah, uh, my coping mechanism was always sport as my outlet. So I found that I never turned to drink and drugs like some stressful situations um, can cause in people. Everyone has their pacifier or their adult dummy. I like to describe it. You know, some people eat chocolate, some people drink, some people shop. Um, I did CrossFit. (laughs) I found that was a really good Oh, that's a good one. You lifted um, weights. God, I wish that was mine. I lifted weights and kept myself really fit. and, And my husband's a CrossFit athlete. So the natural outlet for me has always been get outside in nature, lots of fresh air, lots of exercise. Um, and then really important, having good downtime with your friends and socializing and putting work down when you get home as much as possible. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. That work-life balance is important. Yeah. And talking, you've always got to talk about the difficult stuff at work because, um, yes, it was a pretty intense job. Absolutely loved it. Um, was quite addicted to that kind of medicine, maybe like, adrenaline junkie style most anesthetists and emergency medicine docs and and people who do pre-hospital critical care are adrenaline junkies it kind of attracts a certain type of person oh i bet because yeah that'd be full on wouldn't it yeah it wouldn't be boring that's for sure Mm. so so then you you've um you've transitioned into more of a preventative health and medicine type of career uh what made Mm. you want to make that change Well, it kind of dropped out of the sky, really, Uh, strange as that sounds. So I've always been really passionate about it. And um, at med school, I went off and did part-time jobs teaching sports nutrition and was a gym instructor and um, actually did loads of programs for my colleagues and mates, you know, on nutrition and exercise. So the seed has always been there because I was an athlete from the age of seven. um, Sports nutrition and exercise and health have always been uh, and kind of a natural progression. You had to do all of that to, to do well. And as it, as it increased, I'd find myself in ED, uh, you know, looking after these cancer patients who couldn't eat because they had mouth cancer and they were really malnourished. And I'd be scribbling down green smoothie recipes and ways for them to get more nutrients in. And, and then talking to people who had se- severe insomnia or mental health issues about the fact that, you know, diet's actually really important and have they tried meditating and it was always there in me, um, but it's very time limited and, and resource limited in an emergency medicine setting to actually get the message across and educate people. But then also there's no follow up. So uh, it wasn't really something I could nourish within that field. And then I got a text message in 2018 from uh, Jay Harrison, who is now my business partner and, and colleague and friend, saying, oh, your name was put forward by a sports physio. Um, Seton Scott of the Corrective Clinic as uh, the doctor that you're looking for. So he had this uh, amazing idea as a sports scientist and someone who's been in the world of PT for a long time and health tech and, you know, using AI and and data platforms to help people en masse. And uh, he wanted a doctor because he wanted to start doing blood tests and, and doing a more robust kind of clinical workup on them and expanding from his idea of doing genetic profiling and doing personalized meal and sports plans to the whole aspect of health, nutrition, sleep, mental health, et cetera. And when I got that text message, I actually got goosebumps. You know, it sent shivers down my spine because I could feel that this was a real thing. And it started off as a conversation and then a bit of um, consulting and it just grew organically uh, until they said, look, we really want you full time and um, we'd actually like you to be our clinical director. So oversee all the programs and help us build this idea up from scratch into something that's actually palatable and do a product market um, fit kind of test, see what works, what doesn't, get lots of feedback. 
And over the last two years, it's completely organically grown just like that. And I would say that although I absolutely loved emergency medicine and helicopter work, um, and it will remain forever a really fun chapter of my life, this new chapter is also equally as exciting because you're pioneering new frontiers. No one's doing this really except in the States. Certainly no one in Australasia has been doing this. We're the first. So it's terrifying and exciting. Um, and every day is a challenge, but never boring. I've never been bored by work. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Because So I'm just trying to think about this. So with, say, emergency medicine, mm. that's like a set thing that you can probably study with set guidelines. With preventative medicine, is it, is it, can you actually study preventative medicine or is it more an accumulation of uh, multiple facets of health that, are then, that you then kind of put together? That's such a good question because with any area of medicine, what generally happens is they establish a need for the area of medicine. Uh, and I'll give you an example in a second. And then a lot of work goes into it. And you, usually it's a lot of pioneering, very forward thinking, hardworking individuals who will really fight the good fight to get that area of medicine recognized. And then they'll form a college, um, they'll build a curriculum, some training schemes, lots of feedback, uh, and they'll, they'll build that. And actually, um, there was a, a doctor 20, nearly 25 years ago now in Starship uh, who realized that there was no emergency medicine service for children. There was only one for adults and, and children are not small adults. They're very, very different beasts when it comes to medicine. And he and his colleagues realized that they had to create a whole new service. And so they had to build it from scratch. And now there's a whole college um, and a whole training scheme and, and, you know, all the infrastructure around delivering pediatric emergency medicine. But 25 years ago, Starship didn't exist in terms of having that service. So it does take quite a long time. And to come back to answer you properly, no, there is no college for preventative medicine or precision medicine. There is no curriculum. There's no official training scheme. Um, my knowledge has been accumulated uh, via self-directed learning over 10, 15 years on the sidelines of studying medicine. And over the last two years, by attending lots of different conferences overseas and training courses and um, being taught by geneticists and epigeneticists and being surrounded by a really good clinical team where everyone has different skill sets and values. And we work together cohesively to provide as good a framework as we can for people. But my, um, my dream is that this will become absolutely the mainstay of medicine in terms of having an individual, personalized, precision medicine approach. And they're already doing this in, in the USA and other places. So, Yeah, well, it's, it's just such an exciting time because I guess people are, are crying out for this because there, there are so many people that are sick mm. and they're, they're on a lot of drugs and they're on a lot of different things and... And I feel like people are looking for, for, for another way or, or some, some way to stop them getting to that point. So it's just, yeah, it's yeah. really exciting. That, that pulls really nicely into um, a conversation you and I were having, Art, about what is longevity and anti-aging because it's, there's such buzzwords at the minute. And your point, uh, Matilda, I just really wanted to highlight that a lot of people are obsessed with longevity in terms of living a long time. But if the years that you live towards the end of your life are really poor in terms of quality because you have poor health, then you don't have the health span associated with that, that lifespan. So um, if we've got a minute, I'd love to talk about longevity with you and what lifespan and health span are because Absolutely. people are getting sicker and sicker, but they're also living longer and longer. So the, the disease burden 
uh, and the chronic care that's required towards the end of life. And that might even be from 50 or 60 years of age. So not that old. And you imagine they've got 20, 30 years of not enjoying their life, poor health, um, big burden on, um, on the healthcare system. It's how do we ameliorate that? So in simple terms, um, I was thinking about how best to answer this so people could understand it as a concept, but uh, lifespan is just how long you live. And longevity usually relates to um, seeking a long life or seeking to live longer than the average duration. So if someone describes longevity in the family, it means they're generally long-lived. But health span is quite a different concept, and that dictates the quality of those final years. So not only do we want to have a longer than average lifespan, but we also want to live our final years in good health, because most people's nightmare is ending up in a nursing home, being spoon-fed, bedridden, demented. Nobody wants that. It's, it's an awful state to be in. And if you imagine that you could spend 10 or 15 years like that, that's that's just it's terrifying. Terrifying. So to go back to like the 1900s, the life expectancy average was only, you know, late 40s across the board. You'd obviously get people who would live a long time, but because there was so much infant death and, and young childhood death and death in pregnancy and, and childbirth, the average was um, late 40s. But now men can expect um, in the developed world to live to their late 70s and women to their early 80s. Um, and these gains are slowing worldwide. And it's uncertain when that lifespan will cap, but it is thought that people who are born now could well live to be 100. Um, so at Edison, wow. what we focus on is, is health span rather than just lifespan, health longevity. Yeah, and so how, how do you go about achieving that? Like, what's you, like what does your program sort of entail? Yeah, could you outline yeah, yeah. what Edison does? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, it came from a core concept of, um, well, Jay realizing that he could give the same program, say you were to put lots of people on a ketogenic diet or a low carb, high fat diet, and a certain type of in high intensity interval training program, you would get um, a set amount of people who would do incredibly well, you'd get a certain amount of people who would do okay, uh, and some people would get no gains, and some people would actually be really ill, so their hair might fall out, or they might suddenly suffer from terrible hormonal problems. And so he began to feel that the one-size-fits-all approach absolutely doesn't work in the health and fitness industry. It doesn't really work in the medical industry. We could talk for days and days about why not, but um, precision medicine is all about finding the right lifestyle recipe for them in terms of eating the right nutrients, doing the type of exercise that they're genetically suited to, not overtraining them, um, optimizing their sleep and their work-life balance and helping them to create stress resilience. And when we know what their genetic strengths and potential areas needing support are, then we can really focus on the areas that most need attention. And so a big part of our programs are the constant feedback we provide um, as people make the lifestyle changes to ensure that they're on the right track um, and getting the right results that they want. And then this is a huge motivator for them. It makes the relationship between cause and effect crystal clear for everyone because lots of people know what they should be doing, but doing it is a completely different matter. Most people, It feels overwhelming sometimes. It does, completely. And most people know that they shouldn't smoke, it's bad for them, that you need seven to eight hours of sleep a night, that you shouldn't eat junk food, um, that working on your laptop or playing computer games till three in the morning possibly is not great for your brain, but they still do it. And so what you've got to do is explore all of the different aspects of why that individual is behaving in that way and what their belief systems are and their you know, work and home environment um, barriers are. And, and spend time with them. And that's something that, unfortunately, um, you can't really provide in the current healthcare setting due to resource and time limitations. 
but unfortunately is what is really necessary to help to educate someone and to provide those long-term changes. So that's what we're trying to do for them. And it must just be um, the support as well, because I think like it's all very well to sort of tell someone like, right, here's what you mm. need to be eating and here's what you have to be doing. Off you go, you know, go and do it. But but it's the support I feel like that, that keeps people on track. So they're like, right, I've got someone to, to, to go to to ask questions yeah. or if I'm feeling like I can't do it, I've got someone to help. And that's yeah. That's I think awesome. I think also, you know, we we do things because we just hope that they're going to work and be, be positive because the feedback loop is so it's you know so slow i guess mm. so how do you how do you manage that you must take a lot of measurements and get mm. a lot of data we what do. sort of stuff do you measure um well would it be helpful if i ran you through what happens when someone comes to edison and what totally. we measure so i'll i'll try and be quick cuz i'm known for talking at length about <laughs> all of these things so just just stop me if I go too far. But if you came in, um, first of all, we'd establish whether you're a suitable patient. So for example, if you are suffering with a multitude of chronic medical comorbidities, we don't try and fix those. We're a preventative health clinic, not uh, you know, um, fixing, uh, say, chronic fatigue and um, lots of functional issues. Uh, we, we don't do treatment medicine. We do preventative medicine. So we'd establish whether you're um, suitable. And then once you've been screened, if you were to book in, we would get you to do some pre-screening, both lifestyle questionnaires and medical questionnaires. And we assimilate a lot of data about you, um, how you move, sleep, eat, think, what your, um, what your stress levels are like. And we actually formally screen you for anxiety, depression, um, stress, uh, happiness, et cetera, using validated medical screening tools. So when you come in, we've already got a good snapshot of what's going on. And then you'll come and have a 90-minute medical where um, nearly an hour, 45 minutes to 60 minutes of that, will just be talking with the doctor so that we can really get to know you as an individual and build on the information you've given us and establish your health needs and what your potential barriers are and make a plan, start formulating a plan of how to get you to where you need to be. So um, we know what we need to work with. And then the next part of the medical is the testing. So you'll get a normal physical exam um, head to toe, like you'd get in, in, in the doctors. But we also get you to spit into a tube, and then we can send that genetic material off to look at all the different variables for what kind of fuel should you be putting in your body? How much carbohydrate and fat do you need as an individual um, what kind of um, fat metabolism do you have? Are you likely to have issues with overtraining? Should you be doing power-based or endurance-based activities? Um, what kind of mental health panel do you have? You know, how prone are you um, or what's your association with anxiety and resilience and impulsivity and empathy and cognition-like? So it gives us a much deeper layer of um, knowledge and insight a bit like that film inception where you just keep going another layer deeper and deeper and then we add in a 3d body scan which gives us great information about what we call your cardio metabolic health um, you know all your uh, lean mass fat mass body shape risk factors etc and that's a great baseline for screening for ongoing measurement do a lot of blood work looking at vitamin levels and organ function um, and uh, do lung function testing and something called an advanced ECG if it's indicated, which is very clever technology that our cardiologist, Dr. Patrick Gladding, introduced to the clinic 
about a year ago now, it's a five-minute continuous tracing of um, an ECG where you have the, the dots put onto your chest and it measures the electrical activity of your heart. And it goes off to Switzerland to be analyzed by Dr. Todd Schiegel, who's an ex-NASA physician. So he worked with NASA for 27 years, incredibly clever, lovely guy, and holds a patent for this technology, runs that data through artificial intelligence algorithms, and then creates this mathematical model of your heart and can give the most accurate heart age in the world and pick up disease much earlier. We're talking 10, 20 years than a standard screening process. So that's your medical. That's incredible. It's so exciting. We absolutely love doing this for people because the, the insights you get on an individual level are just absolute gold. And then they'll go away and it does take about four to six weeks to get all that data from overseas. And we build them a health report and we talk about how's your nutritional health, your metabolic health. Metabolic health is just how your body's handling weight and blood sugar and cholesterol and things like that. Um, your cardiovascular health, your mental health, so important in this day and age with COVID and everything that's going on. People are under huge amounts of stress. And after that health report's made, it's like, this is where you're at right now. This is a snapshot. It's like looking under the hood and doing a WAF. This is your personal in-depth WAF. And then we create a protocol, which is your playbook for how you should be sleeping, what time you should be going to bed according to your genetics, um, what kind of exercise and when, what type of day, what kind of um, meal system you need. Should you be fasting? If so, how much, how often? And I think we're going to talk a lot more about fasting later. Um, and that is their results presentation. And then we take them on a journey of following them up every quarter. So every three months they come in and see me or another doctor and we do a medical check-in and we repeat all their blood work that's necessary, 3D scans, talk to them, um, blood pressure, etc. And they get this constant feedback of how they're doing. And at the end, in a year, you get a whole medical again and you close the loop. But in between, you've got a health assistant helping you with difficult decisions and motivation. We've got psychologists, new team of eight nutritionists, all with different interests. So they can custom build nutrition plans based on, are you menopausal? Are you obese with a metabolic syndrome? Um, do you have uh, an eating disorder? Do you have um, you know, pregnancy or fertility issues? Are you trying to build lean mass for the gym? So uh, really, really kind of individual programs. The level of detail is incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. Mm. Yeah. What? So do you most, mostly prescribe, uh, I guess, lifestyle changes for people to implement? Or do you also like um, give people uh, prescription medicines and things if they need it or vitamins if they need it? Um, really good to delineate that. So we are not GPs. Uh, we operate purely under a preventative scope of practice. So we do not replace people's GPs. Um, we absolutely encourage them to keep their GPs and we work alongside the GPs and the cardiologist or uh, whoever else, specialist, endocrinologist that they're seeing. Uh, because first of all, you must always have a primary care physician. And because we don't treat disease, uh, so nobody comes to us who's actually sick, you know, with an acute viral illness which is why we're quite a safe place to be during COVID because we <laughs> refuse to see anyone who's sick. Uh, because you know, when we measure your inflammatory markers, which is part of what we call your biogenic age calculation, how you're wearing and tearing on the inside, if you're sick and your inflammatory markers in your blood have gone up, that impacts your age calculation and makes it look like you're wearing and tearing more rapidly on the inside, even if it's for a short period of time. So first of all, we don't see any sick people, but also they, they have to have their GP to go for health screening like smear tests and, and bowel screening and um, if you've got an acute sickness or if you're on long-term medication and you need it reviewed. So the GP definitely stays in the picture. 
Um, and we complement the GP by providing the time and the resources that are limited in a GP setting for those people who can access them. For example, working very hard with them on diet and fasting and uh, exercise to help to get their cholesterol down so they perhaps don't need that cholesterol medication like statins. They don't need the blood yeah. pressure medication so much anymore because as you bring the weight down and you make them healthier, the blood pressure very often comes back down to a normal range if you catch it soon enough. Yeah, and you mentioned something just before. You mentioned biogenic age. Mm. So what is a biogenic age, and is that one of the key markers that you use to track someone's progress? Yes, so there's lots of different ways at the moment worldwide of measuring what's um, often called your biological clock. So say you're 40 years old chronologically. Some people living a really good lifestyle will be 32. Some people who smoke and drink and are overweight and um, have a lot of inflammation from, from these processes in their lifestyle could be 55. There's quite a variance. So it's great to get a snapshot of how you're wearing and tearing on the inside right now. And then it provides this beautiful feedback system on a quarterly basis of, are you doing the right thing? Are you on the right track? Because it takes so many different variables into account in the blood, this calculation that was actually developed in um, Yale, that if your biogenic age is coming down, you are definitely ticking multiple boxes simultaneously for overall improved health. And we see people take years off their um, premature aging, you know, so you could gain three years in life in one year of Edison. I mean, that sounds pretty good. Some people do six <laughs> or seven. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm. Um, just to backtrack a little bit, Eula, on, um, you mentioned um, – the genetic testing and things that that you might be more um, pre predisposed to, say like endurance versus strength or this kind of thing. So mm. do you, do you find that um, people kind of subconsciously uh, feel better when they do the things that they're genetically um, predisposed to, to to do, or do you find that when you tell them, then they have to change their lifestyle to? to do those things to get the results, if you know what I mean. Yeah, a little bit of both. Sometimes I tell people their genetic results and they say, oh, I kind of knew that. I had, I had a suspicion that carbs weren't good for me. I get really sleepy after meals and I just feel rubbish when I eat them. You know, I get brain fog or, oh, I feel really achy and it takes me days to recover when I try and cycle 100 Ks. Isn't it interesting that I have um, a reduced capacity to recover after exercise and I'm actually better at power? Um, so sometimes you get people who really naturally navigate towards what they should be doing because they're quite intuitive, they listen to their body, and they've naturally aligned. And in that case, it's really nice for them to have that kind of seal of approval. Oh, I was right all along. It validates their choices. And then some people um, really are overtraining. They're doing huge amounts of endurance when they shouldn't be. Um, and they just don't equate the, the achy joints and the sore kind of stiff fatigue just not recovering with overtraining. So it's really helpful for us to build that in, that knowledge and that insight. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes, yes, we do change their training. We might just say, stop doing CrossFit or F45 three consecutive days. We want you to do day on, day off, day on, day off. So we can, we can tinker, give yeah. them more recovery time. Right. Can you outline just again, what are, the, what are the main things that you, I guess, prescribe for people? You prescribe their nutrition. Yeah. You probably, you prescribe a bit of their activity and movement. Uh, you look at their feeding windows. So you look at fasting, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about in a second. Do you also do anything to do with hot and cold? I know you we do, do. Uh, talk about saunas. And yeah. Things. So um, what we tend to do is tap into all the free things as much as possible. 
um, that people can just instate in their own homes at no cost. So we teach them how to eat. Um, we teach them how to, how to sleep. So there's all sorts of sleep hygiene um, hacks that you can put in place that help your body to get optimal deep and, and REM sleep, which are two types of critical sleep you get each night. Um, we teach them about um, the time of day they should be doing certain things, when their brain might be sharpest, when they should be relaxing. So it's how to be engaged and cognitively sharp and switched on and then how to turn that off and um, align with a natural circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm is just your internal body clock. All animals have them. And um, then there are things like cold showers um, and, and hot saunas or hot baths, if you don't have access to a sauna, can really um, biohack. Now, that's quite a common phrase. Some people love that phrase, some hate it. But it is essentially hacking your system to get an effect by doing something like producing a small amount of stress, good stress, it's called hormetic stress, to fast or to have cold or heat exposure um, or exercise is another form of hormetic stress, so that you're getting a small amount of stress that has a disproportionate um, beneficial amount of response from the body as a protective mechanism. So, for example, you go to the gym and you lift heavy weights and you tear your muscles, the little myocyte cells, the muscle cells, and when they repair, they grow stronger and fatter. So you get hypertrophy or you get bigger muscles. So that's a hormetic stress that the body then responds to and you get a better, more beneficial outcome. And it's the same with all of these things. Okay. Look, I'll admit, Art and I aren't the biggest drinkers, but boy do we make an exception when it comes to Clean Collective's range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTGs. Yeah, these drinks are completely free from sugar, carbs and preservatives and they're super yum. So they really tick all of our boxes, don't they Matt? They sure do. Clean Collective was actually founded by two young Kiwis, Holly and Dan, and all their products are made right here in New Zealand. So by choosing to drink Clean Collective, you're not only making a better choice for your body, but are supporting local at the same time. Win-win. They have a range of five delicious flavours, including a brand new pear and elderflower with vodka, and are available in four packs of bottles or large 12 packs of cans. Whether you're heading out to a family barbecue or planning a big night out, they've got you covered. You can purchase them from your local liquor store, and you'll usually find them in the fridges alongside the other premixes. They're the ones in the crisp white packaging. I hear they're also the official drink of the Rhythm and Vines Festival, which is very cool also. Oh, love that. So be sure to give them a follow at Clean Collective Official on Instagram and Facebook, or head to their website, www.cleancollective.co, for more information. Cheers to drinking clean. Can we touch on fasting now? Yeah. I reckon we can really... Let's, let's dive deep into this. Deep dive, deep dive into fasting. So, mm. Yeah, so you are quite a fan of fasting, Eula, and what is it that you like about it? Like, what are some of the benefits? The first thing I like is that it's free. Um, so it's free healthcare, <laughs> uh, and it's a great way to hack into your system to naturally get these beautiful adaptations um, to occur, which then help with health longevity. Your body is an incredibly clever machine. And if you think back to thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the human was never in, a, in an environment where there was an abundance of food constantly. So there would be short-term abundance of food, lots of calories, particularly lots of protein. And as we know, proteins, are the, the building blocks of protein or the breakdown products are amino acids. So we'll talk about those in a sec. So you've got this one state over here, which is abundance of food, calories, and protein. And that helps the body to enter a grow-grow phase. So it's all about growing tissues, um, getting bigger and stronger, et cetera. 
And then on the other side of the coin, which probably happened more often than not, you had a paucity of calories. You had a relatively calorie-restricted state. You had poor amounts of protein intake. Humans have always fasted and feasted, fast and feast. We were never, ever designed to wake up, eat, and then eat every two or three hours throughout the day until we went to bed and have this constant abundance of nutrients. Because actually, when you've got a constant abundance of nutrients, you have an increased risk of chronic disease and cancer. And I'm going to explain why. So it's a balance of these two essential processes. So you can either be in this grow, grow phase, or you can be in this, what I call clean up, heal and repair phase. And you want to have both at different times and tap into them when you want them, because they both have off, they both have perks and they both have downsides. So let's take, first of all, what happens when you have lots of protein and high protein diets have been a big fad for a long time. And it's actually no long-term studies about you know, how beneficial that is. But say you've got a state where you've got lots of calories and you've got lots of protein. So you've got these little sensors called nutrient sensing pathways in the cells of your mouth and your stomach and your gut. So whenever you eat the food, these little cells light up and they say, oh, nutrients are present, particularly amino acids from protein and, and calories. And then they kind of kickstart this whole engine. So you imagine it's like an on switch for a whole engine that starts whirring into action. And um, you get um, growth factors that start getting secreted like um, insulin. So you know when you eat sugar or carbohydrate and it goes up into the bloodstream, you get a spike of blood sugar, a little pancreas organ will go, oh, there's sugar in the system. I need to mop it up and send it off to the liver and the muscles and store it as fat. So it wants to keep the blood sugar in, in a nice regulated level in the blood. So insulin's a really important um, growth process. And then there's something called insulin-like growth factor, which is really important. It's called IGF-1. And even if you've never heard of it before, that is a buzzword, which we can come back to time and time again. It's a key player in this. And there's another little one called mTOR, but I think in this session, I'm going to keep it as an overview and we can do a deeper dive maybe in another session. But IGF-1 and mTOR are like little, um, think of them as little men waving flags saying it's time to grow, grow. So they get switched on. Um, and then you get this huge cascade of effects where um, the body switches on as much growth as rapidly as possible. So you're growing muscles, growing tissues. It's just a free-for-all. It's a, it's, a, it's a feast situation. But the, the plus side is you get to grow muscles. So say you're going to the gym and you're training hard. You need IGF-1 and mTOR and these nutrient-sensing pathways to flood the system with nutrients so you can grow bigger and stronger. But... If we talk about um, growth, you don't also want prolonged, unregulated periods of growth because what is cancer? Cancer is lots of cells that have kind of started misbehaving and stopped listening to the normal um, instructions from hormones and, and growth factors, and they just have a free fall and they do what the hell they want. Um, and then they infect the cells around them and also cause problems with those cells misbehaving. And then eventually you've got this clump of cells that are a rebel force. So they don't listen, they just grow willy-nilly um, and they cause all sorts of havoc in the system and they spread. So that's, that's what we don't want. So growth can be a great thing. It can also be a really pathological thing in this kind of a spectrum. And your cells are really clever usually. They've got, as they, um, as they replicate, as they you know, double up and, and reproduce and, and um, the genetic material in them copies and copies and copies, they've got all of these little um, checkpoints so you imagine it's like a traffic light system and it says, oh, yep, you're, you've replicated properly, you've passed the test, you can, you can go on and, and do it again. But 
if they have in the cell um, a problem, uh, they'll actually recognize in the cell that that DNA hasn't copied properly and there's an error in it, like a little mutation. And so that cell can either do one of two things. It can repair the DNA damage that's accidentally occurred and then it can go on or it can um, do something called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. It actually explodes. So so you've got these checkpoints to stop growth happening in an unregulated manner that could end up in cancer. But the problem is when you've got all these nutrients flooding the system, those little self-checkpoints um, in the cell, IGF-1 and mTOR, which are you know, great for growth, they actually downregulate that. So they make it more likely that those cells can reproduce badly and the ge- genetic material can have mutations and then they can go and, and spread. So if you've got chronically high levels of IGF-1 in your blood um, and, and mTOR and these nutrient sensing pathways are switched on, on, on all the time, you can see how downstream you've got an increased risk of cancer. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically you've got all of these cells basically replicating and replicating and replicating, and there's more chance that they won't be picked up if there are mutations in them. So then mm. these incorrectly um, uh, coded cells could then go on to become cancerous cells if they're not picked up. Absolutely right. So mm. you've got um, the bittersweet situation of lots of growth, but the increased risk of bad cells replicating and causing damage. Yeah. Right. So that's one scenario. And and so then fasting helps by giving your system time to to clean up these cells. Oh my god, yes, you've read about autophagy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's from from Art passing on that information. To yeah, me, we had it? we had a good chat, didn't we, Art, about fasting? Yeah. So the flip side is you've got a calorie restricted state. So you're in the wilderness. You've not eaten for a day or two. There's not much protein in the system, and because that was such a common thing for our ancestors, they were always going without food. If you just died or came to harm because of that, no humans would have survived. And so all of these protective mechanisms kick in when you're in a fasted state uh, because IGF-1 goes down, mTOR goes down because there's not the nutrients switching those pathways on. Um, And then in that state, there's a lot of uh, really... um, clever little mechanisms which kickstart called autophagy where the cell goes oh i've got time to do my spring cleaning so it then upregulates all those checkpoints and it checks everything obsessively and it starts looking at cells that are dysfunctional or um or or you know really should have died and, and apoptosed a long time ago but have been ignoring the signals and it clears them out so autophagy is cleanup mode and um what happens is it's kind of a form of stress fasting, isn't it? So you get these little proteins that start um, getting expressed and a whole cascade of events in the body where, um, I don't know if you remember Pac-Man from the 80s, the film, Absolutely. Yeah, the, the computer game where the little round circle with the mouth comes and gobbles everything up. So think of these, um, think of these senescent cells, they're called, they're kind of senile dysfunctional, um, almost we call them zombie cells as well, because they're not behaving, they're not listening to signals. They're actually releasing a lot of inflammatory cytokines, which are little chemical messengers, which then disrupts all the cells around them. And so you get oh, these just burdens. It is. It's like it's like zombie, <laughs> zombie apocalypse going on um, with all these <laughs> senescent cells. And actually an accumulation of senescent cells in your system increases your risk of Alzheimer's and dementia and cancer and Parkinson's and heart disease. All chronic diseases are increased by the senescent cells because they're constantly releasing these big um, kind of waves of inflammation and infecting everything around them. So 
You don't want that. Um, so what happens with autophagy when you're in a fasted state is these macrophages, which are like Pac-Man, they come along and they just <laughs> gobble up all of the um, crazy cells um, and, and clean them up. And sometimes they don't need to gobble them up and destroy them. They can actually repair them. They can regenerate them and put them back on course to behave like a normal cell that then goes on and, and does its thing that it's supposed to do. So two stages, autophagy and grow-grow, and you want to tap into both when you need them. But think of the spring cleaning as your body as a house. And if you never clean your house, if you eat constantly, your house gets pretty dirty and there's layers and layers of dirt and debris that make the whole system inefficient. You can't find anything. Nothing really works. Um, so daily time-restricted feeding where you eat within a certain window, like an eight or a 10-hour window each day, and you give your body a chance to recover overnight is kind of like your surface cleaning that you do week in, week out. And then a prolonged fast where you actually fast for more than 24, 48 hours even up to five days where you do a longevity fast, which we can talk about, is like you're doing your deep spring clean. You're really getting in there, getting all of the, the junk out of the system. And then the system runs more efficiently um, and, and you, you live longer and healthier as a result. It makes so much sense. And can, can anybody fast or is it, uh, do, you, do you have to sort of screen people beforehand and just definitely screen sure people, definitely screen people. So I don't want anyone to take anything I say in this podcast as direct medical advice. You should always talk to your doctor or come and talk to us or talk to someone like Katie Boyd, who's uh, an expert nutritionist and, and fasting at the Boyd clinic. Um, because everyone's different. So to give you some examples, if you are a child, if you're over 70, um, if you have an eating disorder, if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, if you have um, cancer or if you have some very serious kind of medical ailment or you're a type 1 diabetic um, or you have blood pressure issues, you must always do it under medical supervision um, because it's quite a stress on the system depending on how you do it. And it's something like exercise. You would never go and just run a marathon so you wouldn't just go and do a seven-day water fast if you'd never fasted before in your life. That would be awful. It, it would really tip you into damage rather than healing and regeneration. Um, so it's about practice. And what we usually suggest people start with is um, to follow the advice of Dr. Walter Longo, who's actually um, the director uh, at the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern Carolina, California, sorry. And he's done a huge amount of work over 20, 30 years on fasting uh, metabolic health cancer and he says that if you can just fast for 12 hours and nearly everyone can do this uh, overnight then you give your chance you give your system a chance to clear out some of the the cells um, and become more efficient and particularly improve your metabolic health like you clear out blood sugar and insulin and you you learn to become a bit um, more efficient at fat burning everything improves if you can do that and particularly if you can stop eating three hours before bed so that would be your baseline to start from. Very gentle, um, again, medical supervision necessary in some situations, but most people can get away with that. And then you can build it up uh, uh, through right through to a prolonged fast. So we could talk about the different types of fasting if that would be helpful. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. Be really and, um, and, you know, even how often you would recommend for, your, you know, your average person that they that they do a, a longer fast, a 24-hour or a 48-hour fast. Yeah. Um, intermittent fasting is kind of this umbrella term that's really bandied about a lot, but it can cause a lot of confusion because it uh, alludes to lots of different processes. So I prefer to talk about um, time-restricted feeding or prolonged fasting. 
So what I've just described was a, the very gentlest form of time-restricted feeding where you have 12 hours off, 12 hours on for eating. Um, but you can also do 13 hours overnight, 14 hours overnight, 16, 18, depending on what your needs are. And to just describe some of the benefits that that simple practice alone doing, say, say you did this five or six days a week and then you have a day off at the weekend because we're never after perfectionism. It's not black and white. It's what you do, like cleaning your teeth every day will stop you getting dental caries. If you forget once a week, you're not going to get a filling. Do you know what I mean? So it's, totally. what, it's what you do cumulatively, the small 1%. Um, but the, the beauty of doing even a 13-hour overnight fast is that people like Ruth Patterson, who's got a PhD, she's a professor um, and cancer research researcher at um, the University of California in San Diego, and she's actually the leader of the cancer prevention program there. So she did this huge study of 2,500 breast cancer survivors, and she put them on a 13-hour overnight fast. And then in the 11-hour eating window during the day, they could eat whatever they wanted, junk food, healthy food. There was no restriction, so they didn't really change what they ate. And what they could do in their fasting window, which is mainly overnight, um, say from 7 p.m. to 8 a.m. in the morning, they could have a black tea or a black coffee with no calories because that's not kick-starting your um, metabolic kind of furnace. You're not switching it on with that. They had a 37% reduction in breast cancer recurrence no matter what they ate or drank just from doing a 13-hour overnight fast. Nothing else was changed. So these findings have tremendous public health implications. And the work of um, Dr. Ruth Patterson has shown that um, in her studies, you can have... Um, only 5% of breast cancer being related to genetic factors, which are very hard to turn off, like the BRCA1 and 2 gene that some women are born with. Um, but 75% of the cancer was actually lifestyle related. So obesity, diet, um, being inactive and smoking. So if you think of that, like the obese woman um, uh, in her study had a nearly 60% increased risk of breast cancer. So just by doing a 13-hour fast overnight, you can really change your risk of getting breast cancer. And that 13 hours, that when you put it into perspective of like 7 p.m. to, to 8 a.m., like that, that doesn't, that's really not that bad. I mean, that's a lot of people would, would do that anyway, especially people who have kids and, and have dinner at, you know, 6 p.m., like we do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. so, so, what, so what, what then is, I guess, like the ideal window? Ooh to do time-restricted feeding? Well, that depends on the individual because, again, we never do a one-size-fits-all approach. So um, someone who – let's put people into the well camp and the not well camp. So someone who's very well, it depends on their gender and it depends on their age. So, for example, a young woman could easily do um, an 18-6 or a 16-8, so you'd fast for 16 hours overnight um, or even 18 hours and, and really thrive on that. But when you're in your 40s, you might do um, a 14-10. Or if you're menopausal, you might do a 13-11. You have to be a bit gentler on the system. And you have to change as the woman changes uh, to keep in touch with what her hormonal and metabolic needs are. And the same with, with men. So younger people can often tolerate much more stringent fasting regimes than older. That's one thing. Then the other thing is, what are you trying to achieve with your fasting? Because there's three kind of gross benefits of fasting. One is better metabolic health. One is better neurocognitive or brain health. And one is better gut health. So if you've got terrible gut problems, like um, you've got inflammatory bowel disease or IBS or, or just really struggling with bowel health, you'd obviously discuss this with your 
primary care physician and your specialist, but giving the gut a really good rest overnight gives the ability for healing to occur because it's very hard for gut healing to happen when there's constantly food in the system and it's trying to metabolize it. It needs some downtime to do that. So for a, a gut fast, you'd have nothing but water, no tea, no coffee, nothing, just pure water. Um, and you'd give it as a rest for as long as you need. So it could be anywhere between 12 and 18 hours, depending on the individual. If it's for um, neurocognitive health, so people who either have um, APOE4 genes, which make them much more likely to get Alzheimer's, or they have some subjective cognitive decline, or they have Alzheimer's, or they're at risk, or they've just got brain fog and they feel their brain's not very sharp, fasting can really help with that because you're clearing all the sugar and the insulin out and you're actually switching on a fat-burning mode. Um, which can make you mentally sharper as your brain starts burning um, ketone bodies, which are the breakdown of, of fat rather than um, sugars and proteins. Or, or you can do a um, metabolic fast where you're trying to bring your cholesterol down and your blood sugar down and, and, and cure some pre-diabetic state. So that there's different reasons why you might fast and then the different um, lengths that you can fast and each one's tailored to the individual. Um, then you would look at how often, well, we say five to six days a week is great. Have a day off at the weekend, relax, don't feel bad about it. You want to live a, a normal life. You don't want to feel like you're in a state of deprivation all the time. God, that's there's so much there's so much to know about fasting. It's, it's oh awesome. yeah. yeah. We're, we're scratching the surface. It's cool, what isn't it? it? Yeah, because yeah. And, and it's not just about the autophagy, it's also about yeah, resetting your gut. And I suppose it's probably resetting a few other markers. Um we could talk if, about if, that, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what what are the other positives of fasting? Because it, uh, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about the longer fast in a second. But um, yeah, what are the other benefits of yeah. fasting? Well, we've talked about autophagy, which increases health longevity, clearing up all the senescent zombie cells and spring cleaning the system. Um, other benefits are that um, when you um, when you detox the system um, with with fasting, uh, you actually get a reduced risk of cognitive decline and um, Alzheimer's and brain problems. And that's based on the work of um, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's been studying people with Alzheimer's for 20 or 30 years, and he's done a hell of a lot of research in this space. And his Ketoflex protocol, his book actually is called The End of Alzheimer's, it's a really, really good read, uh, has shown that people who eat um, for uh, 12 hours and have a fast for at least 12 hours, sometimes more if they've got both copies of the gene and they're more at risk, they might do a 16-hour fast overnight. And if they can stop eating three hours before bed, it allows all that blood flow in the gut, which is busy you know, trying to digest your food. If you stop that three hours before bed and the stomach's had a chance to empty, that blood flow can then be used by the brain to enter a really deep sleep state in the first half of the night, which is when you start clearing out all your junk, you know, your, your plaques and tangles and all the debris that starts to accumulate each day. We all have toxins constantly produced in our system, but we also need to clear them out. So it gives you an opportunity to clear them out each night, rest and reset, rest and reset. You don't want that constant accumulation of inflammation or inadequate sleep or um, eating late at night and these things that disrupt the system. Has there been any studies around um, reversing um these sorts of things like Alzheimer's or oh, dementia definitely. or anything like that? Definitely. Um, I would point people to Dr. Dale Bredesen's work and his book, The End of Alzheimer's, and he's got a whole website on it. And we could do a whole session on it, but the Bredesen protocol is what people should look up uh, and they could definitely talk to their doctors about it. It's quite a um, comprehensive analysis and protocol, um, but he's he's got a wealth of data around that. So 
We can mm. put something in the show notes with some references for people, resources. Mm. Yeah. 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 We'll yeah. So the other things that you can do with fasting are improving your metabolic health. So to give you an example of how important your circadian rhythms are, these little metabolic pathways have a time when they're switched on and they're efficient and they have a time when they're not supposed to be working. So if you eat a burger and fries at 10 a.m. when your metabolic pathways are active and you're insulin sensitive, so things are switching on and working you know, efficiently, it's far less detrimental than you if, if you eat the same meal with the same calories at 10 p.m. You're much more likely to have higher blood sugar, higher insulin levels in your blood, which is not good for you, higher fat storage. Um, and then the next day, you haven't had a chance to rest and reset. And so you start the day on the back foot with higher insulin levels and glucose levels. And then you enter the cycle of getting worse and worse and worse. So time of day for eating is really important. And when you actually stop eating three hours before bed and you fast overnight, you reduce your blood sugars to a healthier level and you help to clear out all of that insulin. So you're actually reducing your risk of developing diabetes. Um, then you're improving the way you handle body fat. So if you deplete all of your carbohydrates in the system or you're using them heavily and then you switch into fat burning mode, you've got fat stores. All of us have them. Lots of people want less of them. Um, and when you're accessing those for fuel, uh, they actually um, get broken down. And the fatty acids are the little breakdown products of fat, a bit like amino acids are a breakdown of um, protein and glucose is a breakdown of carbohydrates. They get sent off to the liver and the liver's pretty clever. It can make these things called ketone bodies via um, a process of oxidation, which you can then use as fuel. And one of the ketone bodies is called beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, and that's kind of a buzzword in the keto world because people, you know, sometimes take exo exogenous ketones, which is outside of the body, you know, as a supplement. But you, your body makes them. And when your body's fat burning because you're in a fasted state and it's producing a state of ketosis, i.e. these ketone bodies, there's different types, like um, beta-hydroxybutyrate is a really important one. And your brain starts burning that for fuel. A lot of people get extreme mental clarity and focus and concentration and um the presence of this is actually anti-inflammatory and um, associated with longevity. So um, there's lots of people all over the world who've been studying this, but to give you some examples, um, you know, Dr. Guido Cromer um, and Dr. Sachin Panda, um, he's a professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences. Um, they've looked at circadian rhythms and what happens when you eat certain foods at certain times of day and um, what happens to your fat burning and your carb burning and, you know, the end on effects of longevity and autoph autophagy. Uh, so there's huge benefits from just timing your meals at the right time um, and, and getting some rest overnight. And then your cholesterol can come down as well. Fasting is wonderful for cholesterol regulation. So simple, but so amazing. And yeah, free. And totally it's free. free. And free. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's, in fact, it's cheaper. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cheaper than your normal life of, of, of eating. And you're improving your body composition at the same time. So the biggest thing we see with fasting is if you change nothing about what you eat, how you sleep, how you exercise, but you start doing... Again, I've, I've been naughty, I've used intermittent fasting, but we'll call it time-restricted eating. Say you start a 16-8, fasting 16 hours overnight, eating an eight-hour window. Um, you'll notice that on the 3D body scan, even though in some cases their weight may not change, but in others they may drop quite a lot of weight, you get reduced visceral fat, which is that fat around the organs, reduced fat around the abdomen, which is called central adiposity. Um, the kind of fat you don't want around the middle is the most harmful. They get more lean mass, and so their body shape rating, their body composition really improves because the body is now able to switch between carb burning, sugar burning, and fat burning, and they've developed more of this ability to be metabolically flexible 
So people who are stuck in carb burning are the ones who, if they don't eat carbs, they get very hangry, they have to eat every two hours, they get very irritable, and they get terrible cravings, they can't concentrate. If you're doing that and you're yo-yoing between high and low all day with your energy, then you have got stuck into a, an inefficient fuel burning cycle and we need to help reset the system. And fasting is one of the tools for doing that. And you mentioned beta-hydroxybutyrate mm. um, or exogenous ketones. Is that something that you incorporate into anyone's protocols or is that just a personal thing that uh, people might want to no, use? No, we don't. And um, if anyone wants to know more about exogenous ketones, um, Dr. Rhonda Patrick from Found My Fitness has done a, a lot of work around this. Uh, because there's some evidence that if you take exogenous ketones, and by exogenous we just mean anything external that your body's not making inside itself, you're taking it in a supplement form, then it can actually um, reduce the amount of fatty acid oxidation that's happening because you're putting something into the system as a freebie. So it does change the way your system is regulating fat burning. Um, so we, I can put a, a link to a paper on that if anyone wants to read more, but no, we don't use them. Okay, cool. Yeah, we mm. might include that in the in the show notes. Yeah, and what are some common fasting mistakes? Because I know a few years ago when I was doing the um, just fasting in the morning sort of thing, like I wasn't really doing it because everyone was doing it, so so I thought I would just Trendy. like jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, and <laughs> and I found that I lost a lot of weight, but but I think it was just because I was taking out breakfast, mm. um, but but I was still eating um, just a normal sized lunch and dinner. Mm. So do you, do you still have to eat the the same amount of calories? It's not just about such a good question like because taking what, out a meal. Yeah, one of the benefits of fasting, so time restricted feeding, if you say are on a 168, a lot of people will start eating uh, at 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. and they'll finish at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. depending on when they go to bed. Um, because you are even without calorie counting and we never recommend calorie counting, but even without attempting to control your intake you'll naturally generally gravitate towards about 300 calories less per day so you enter this um you know just beneficial mild state of calorie restriction and for some people even 300 calories a day deficit is enough to create quite a bit of weight loss so that's one thing um and the other is that um the, the common mistakes you were um, asking about is that people aren't sure what breaks a fast and what doesn't and I will say right now that it's still under review. There's lots of work being done. For example, with Ruth Patterson's studies, they allowed them to have black tea and black coffee, which has got pretty much no calories. And they saw a 37% reduction in breast cancer risk recurrence. But there isn't a study to do the same um, setting, but with no black tea and coffee, just water. So there's no comparison. So they definitely got a bit of a benefit, a lot of a benefit. But how much more benefit would they get from just water? We don't know. Um, with fasting, you have to decide why you're fasting. If it's for your gut, then common mistakes are that people will still try and have tea and coffee and herbal supplements and things, um, and say a bulletproof coffee, but that's a big no, no. If you've got a bad gut and you're trying to really give yourself a rest, it's just water and you don't need electrolytes. If you're just fasting overnight for say 12 to 14 hours, only for prolonged fasting. So that's one thing. Um, and also you wouldn't want to have apple cider vinegar or lemon juice or um, sugar-free chewing gum because all of those compounds stimulate the production of um, little secretory juices in the gut, the digestive enzymes. So you're waking the gut up. It's not resting. So that's one thing. The other is for metabolic health. Um, based on um, what I've read from Peter Atiyah, 
the, the zero fasting app is great, by the way. If anyone wants to learn how to fast and to learn more about the theory, Peter Atir is a really eminent physician in the States who's done a lot of work on this. And he's got great little podcasts and clips on what does and doesn't break a fast. I'll put the, the links to those in. But if you're doing a metabolic fast for, say, weight loss um, to reduce your cholesterol, then you can get away with things like black coffee and black tea because they don't spike your blood sugar levels. There's no calories, so to speak, and they generally don't spike your insulin. They have a minimal impact on breaking your fast. But the minute you put um, carbohydrates or collagen or peptides or um, protein shakes and things in there, you are, you're waking the system up. So you you're losing the effect. And then for neurocognitive, um, again, you just don't want to spike that blood sugar and insulin. So some people will say you can get away with a bulletproof coffee, which is black coffee with MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride coconut-based oil, which doesn't enter um, the digestive system in the normal way. It kind of goes straight off to the liver and then the brain can burn that as fuel. The brain loves burning that as fuel. Actually, it's a great energy source. Um, but uh, people put butter in it, and, and although it's pure fat, um, it's not causing a blood sugar spike. It's debatable whether that's tipping the system into wake-up mode. So I would say if you want to keep it really simple, and what we do at Edison is rather than saying, oh, you could do a bit of this or could do a bit of that, people hate that. They just want to know exactly what they should be doing. So we keep it ultra simple, and we say you can have black tea and black coffee and water and unsweetened herbal tea, and that is it. And if I have patients who have really bad gut health, I'll, I'll talk to them and say, look, just water. So keep it like that. That's easiest. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Okay, let's, um, let's just touch on longer fast. So when might you uh, get someone to do a, a one-day or a two-day fast, and how often? Okay, so um, time-restricted feeding can go up to 24 hours. 24 hours isn't classed as a long fast. It's kind of an intermediate. It's the upper end of a you know, a shorter fast. Over 48 hours is a prolonged fast. Um, you would decide what you were trying to achieve. And so for um, most people, we put them in the well camp or the unwell. If you're completely well, you would probably do a prolonged fast between one and three times a year for longevity, big cleanup, mental clarity, reset the system. And that's sort of like a three to five day fast, is Correct. that right? So there are two options. You can either do a three day water fast under medical supervision because it takes at least 48 hours for, um, for IGF-1 levels to start reducing. And actually, to be honest, it can sometimes take in some individuals four to five days before the autophagy kicks in. Um, and the other option would be to do something that Dr. Walter Longo has developed called a fasting mimicking diet. So he showed that you can have very small amounts of amino acids, um, proteins, which are plant-based and very low amounts of calories, like 700 calories a day. And you can trick the system to think it's fasting, even though you're putting very small amounts of food in. And for a lot of people, they find that's just a lot more socially acceptable. It's a lot less psychologically um, disturbing. <laughs> um, and it, it just feels easier to do. So lots of doctors are more likely to prescribe a five-day fasting mimicking diet, which is a very set amount of food, either all in one go or spread out throughout, throughout the day, um, versus a water fast. So I've done lots of different types of fasting, and I can tell you that doing a pure water fast for three days is a really interesting experience. Um, it can be quite disturbing. It's definitely a um, a learning curve for most people. You just walk around salivating constantly. <laughs> 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 
um, see everyone's faces as a big burger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the fasting mimicking diet, um, you can either do a DIY version, which is really simple where you eat a couple of avocados a day and a couple of tablespoons of green powder, and you definitely want to replace some electrolytes like magnesium and potassium sodium, et cetera, and water. You have to have much more salt when you're fasting. Or you can do a DIY vision um, where we give you a load of recipes for summer or winter and you make them at home. Um, or you can do the SIP Kitchen um, pre-planned meal delivery service. Um, so they actually just deliver you a box on a certain day and you have five days of pre-packaged labeled foods. You don't have to think. So Easy. Easy, but not yeah. cheap. It's about $300. Um, it's really good quality food, um, but obviously $300 is not an insignificant amount of money. So um, you can fast no matter what your budget is. There are different options. Yeah, right. Okay, so yeah, you either hit the sip kitchen mm. or you reckon two avocados a day. And two tablespoons um, of green powder. And mm. when do you need to have those like all in one go in a specific window or no, can you, you spread it? you can spread it. So um, my colleague Jay always when he's fasting does one meal a day because he much prefers it. Um, he likes to have one bigger meal in the evening or late afternoon so that he can sleep better. Some people really can't sleep well when they're hungry. Um, I've tried it where you have three meals um, and you do more of a 14, 13, 14 hour overnight pure fast and then you're having a very minute breakfast, lunch and dinner and a snack. Um it's personal preference, and again, you should discuss that approach with your doctor. Mm. 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 Yeah. Okay. So then, for okay, yeah. The the other things really critical to remember is it's not just the fasting process. The refeeding is so important. So you do never ever want to do a five day fast and then go and have a big blowout and drink loads of alcohol and eat loads of meat because um, it's a big hormetic stress for your system and the IGF-1 goes down and the mTOR goes down and this huge autophagy kind of cleaning process um, occurs. So you trigger all these protective mechanisms. It's like a compensatory defense um, response and you get repair of cell damage and, and then protection of against future damage. So you're reducing inflammation, um, but all those little stem cells uh, that are needed to rebuild the system after a fast have to have proteins and they have to have IGF-1 and mTOR go up. So you're then tapping in. You need it to, to rebound to grow the system again. Stem cells are um, amazing because they turn on during fasting, but it's refeeding, which is what allows them to proliferate and differentiate, which means that they can, you know, uh, they can grow and expand and then change into any kind of cell that your body needs. That's the beauty of stem cells. They can, as they're undifferentiated, they can become any kind of cell, a brain cell, a, a nerve cell, a muscle cell, et cetera. But you have to feed them to allow them to proliferate and grow. And so we usually have a very um, strict refeeding process, as do Sip Kitchen, where they say the first day after your five-day fast, very gentle on the system. If you eat a huge amount of food, you're likely to get some um, you know, gastrointestinal tummy distress feel bloated, uncomfortable, but also you're shocking the system and it needs to be eased gently back into it. So you want to eat about 1,500 calories, plant-based foods, really whole foods, nothing processed, no alcohol. You can have like a coffee. Uh, and then the next day, uh, so the first day is vegan, the next day you might add in some eggs or some cheese or yogurt or some um, kind of vegetarian nuts and things. And then you'd add in meat. And you'd really try hard not to drink or um, eat rubbish food for many days afterwards to get the full benefits because you've just gone through some relative pain so you don't want to undo all of that you want to no milk way. it for everything it's worth yeah yeah if yeah. you're gonna do it 
you may as well do it properly. Yeah. And it, it can be quite hard. I've done that um, after doing a five-day water fast and I just went straight back into a huge meal of, it was like a healthy meal, you know, I thought it would be good. It was like broccoli rice and a big piece of salmon and it was so delicious and I just felt so sick. And oh, in fact, Ill. my yeah. I felt like my, my, uh, my mind and my stomach didn't link up for no. about three days. I kept overeating, and yeah. it, I just I didn't even didn't even think about the refeeding protocol. The stomach shrinks um, very significantly, and so it takes mm. a very small amount of food to feel full, and a normal amount of food will make you feel quite uncomfortable. You're talking sort of, you know, belching and um, tightness in your tummy and wind and, and tummy pains, just feeling like Christmas Day dinner kind of full oh, from yeah. a tiny meal. <laughs> after after a long fast like that as well do you need to think about um re like repopulating your gut microbiome or anything oh, like yes. that like really my, good mm. yeah best thing you could possibly break a fast with is bone broth um if you're vegan there are other alternatives um with collagen powders and things but bone broth is so healing because it's full of collagen it's full of um healing properties um really good for easing the stomach back in uh, and then you build it up with soups and, um, you know, whole leafy greens and things that are just very easy to digest. Mm, okay. All right, cool. So um, we are kind of running low on time, I think. Uh, I actually just wanted to touch on uh, a quick thing about um, the Edison Protocol because you're essentially looking at – I want to just um, – briefly talk about nutrition you're looking at nutrition from a purely health point of view uh so i wanted to know if you have any specific frameworks that you kind of stick to like is it plant-based is it more like paleo is it i very rarely have people on a keto diet i only do that if they have um to follow a bredesen approach because they have um, cognitive impairment or if they have um, extremely serious gut health issues or inflammatory conditions and we do that in collaboration with their GP and their specialist and it's a short-term thing um, we often will look at um, what their fat burning and fat digestion and absorption capacity is as an individual and tailor the total amount of fat to that and then there's all sorts of other factors like um, their cholesterol levels as to whether we uh, discuss with them the virtues of eating meat versus vegan or vegetarian or whether they should be having um, dairy, etc. And, and we test people for lactose intolerance as well. So that's a big key player in our decision making. So I have people who come in with personal preferences. I want to be vegan. I want to be vegetarian for ethical reasons or planet sustainability reasons. I have people who feel very strongly about their meat intake and, and their cheese and beer and, and things like that. And so we work with the individual based on their belief systems and what they can cope with, but we just educate them as to what the best recipe would be for them. And then we tinker. So I'll often strip out red meat alongside um, the cardiologist. If we're trying to get someone's cholesterol down and not put them on a statin, Dr. Patrick Gladding and I will work together for a set period of time after establishing how at risk are they, how long have we got to try and modify their cholesterol levels. So we might say do a 12-week period and we'll strip out um, lots of animal fats. We'll increase resistance training. We'll introduce fasting. We might do some longevity fasting. And often you can see huge results with that. You know, someone's cholesterol going from 10 down to 7 um, in after one bout of fasting. So I think it's it's very individual to answer your question. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that sort of brings us to our last question. So, Eula, 
If you could only eat three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? <laughs> Definitely seafood. I adore seafood. What, what type? I was wondering if you'd say no food. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I love food. Ask anyone who knows me. I love cooking and, um, and making meals for people and having people around. I love feeding people. Oh, that's um, the best. And I love growing my own veggies. I've got an organic um, veggie garden and stuff. So uh, is it three groups of foods or just three foods? We're going to be um, mean and just say three foods. Oh, that's so mean. It's um, very difficult. It adds another layer okay, of salmon complexity, doesn't it? has to be salmon. I eat salmon many days a week, so that's one. Oh, salmon's the best. I love salmon. Um, oh, how to choose a fruit, where to begin. I do love apples, which is <laughs> kind of boring. Um, oh, no, that's... That's nothing, a good one, actually. Nothing wrong with apples. I have heard um, the skin of red apples is very good for the gut as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, is it food Seven. Food and drink? Mm. Oh, it could, oh. could be drink. Yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Well, sure, oh, sure no, we three foods and a drink. Yeah, foods and a drink. Well, it would have to be water um, mm. because you can't live without that, so that's not oh, really that's a choice. A you, can, you can have that for free. That's not one of yours. Okay, um, cups of In tea. In this land, water is just... I'm, I'm English, so it would have to be cups of tea. Although, oh, um, of course. Yeah. Uh, and salmon, apples. Oh, probably um, raspberries. Oh, this, oh is nice. a, this is a good one. This is a very fresh one, actually. Salmon, apples, raspberries, and a cup of tea. I feel like you'd also survive for quite a while on that. Yeah, I think so. It's we sort of hitting all aspects. Also, would never want to drink your tea while you eat your food as it can really diminish your absorption of key nutrients like iron and calcium and magnesium. So you should oh. try and have your cups of black tea without cow's milk because the casein reduces the absorption of polyphenols in your tea. So that's the mistake I make daily, but I've just decided to live with. And, <laughs> that's your um, voice. And, hey, you can and you perfect, want to keep you know? your, yeah, that's the thing. You, you'd want to keep your cups of tea a good hour away from meals. And I made that mistake for that, years and years. I'd have a pint of tea with my dinner in the hospital because <laughs> you only a get a pint one break. of tea. It sounds like you're going down to the pub for a pint of tea. <laughs> oh, you know, one of those huge mugs to keep you going. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that uh, the same kind of thing as water? Because I've heard that if you have like a big glass of water with your dinner, that that can kind of dilute your stomach acids. That's quite right, and I, I've struggled that with that for years because I I used to drink a lot of water when I was eating. Um, but actually, it was Dr. Libby. Um, Weaver, who introduced that concept to me. And then I did a bit of reading around it. And yes, you can really dilute your digestive enzymes and therefore you'd be more likely to get bloating and um, a bit of discomfort if you're having huge volumes. So you should try and have your big volumes of water away from meals and just have a sip here and there as you need. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Well, if people want to um, come and see you at, at Edison or um, if they want to follow you directly or anything like that how do they how do they do that how do they get in touch with you so um we'll put lots of resources in the show notes but if you want to know where edison is we're a clinic based in parnell in the health quarter ironically um <laughs> so we're in st george's bay road next to lasagel french farmers market uh you can call us on 0800 edison um you can go to our website uh which is www.edisonclinic.com and um, we regularly put out blogs and educational pieces. You could follow us on LinkedIn. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We don't do an awful lot of social media advertising because, to be honest, most of our work is word of mouth. Um, mm. 
but I'll put a whole list of resources for how you can get in touch with us and arrange an appointment um, to come in and have a consultation if you're interested in what we do and also to um, point people in the right direction for further reading around all the topics we've discussed. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll have to have you back on for all of the other aspects that we could talk about i know there's just there's, there's too so much. much well next time we'll bring my epigeneticist rachel in and she can um tell you everything you need to know about the benefits of inducing your heat shock proteins with sauna and cold oh. therapy and sleep absolutely and aura rings. i'd love to geek out on that stuff oh that's a video bring yeah, rachel yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay thanks hey. so much eula thanks eula you're very welcome take care guys bye Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.